Hi, this is Andrew Bryant, author of the new Leadership Playbook, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today on episode 412 is Andrew Bryant. Andrew Bryant is the founder of Self Leadership International. He has coached leaders and leadership teams to become the very best version of themselves and to scale their companies. He has experience with a wide variety of clients internationally and across industries, including the airlines, software and hardware companies, pharmaceutical manufacturers, professional services, banking, finance, manufacturing, vitality, and travel. Andrew lives in Sintra, Lisbon, Portugal, and is here to talk about his book, The New Leadership Playbook, Being Human While Successfully Delivering Accelerated Results. Welcome, Andrew. Hi, Bill. It's great to be here. It's great to have you with me. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? It's my father, because I started work at 10 years old in my father's hardware store, working every Saturday and school holiday, watching him do business, negotiate, influence, and walk into a room with executive presence. That really set a framework for me of who I needed to be and how I needed to grow up. What was something that you picked up that you may not have realized at the time, but looking back, you realized, wait, when dad entered a room, he always did this, or he always made sure he prepared this way. What's something you look back on now that you picked up about executive presence from your dad? Dad always read the room. I didn't realize at the time, because that's a piece of executive presence that sometimes people miss, because it's not just going in with energy, with confidence, with gravitas. It is reading the room. People with executive presence know exactly how far they can push it or whether they should be quiet or whether they should be taking to the front of the room and taking control. Dad always knew how to do that. And it wasn't until later on that I realized that was his real skill. You remember perhaps early in your career when you drew upon that, you needed to be able to read the room to be successful with perhaps talking to a client or perhaps talking with one of your coworkers. And you knew that you were reading the room and you used the advantage of having all of those weeks and months and years observing your dad. Yeah, I have a good story about that. And it's the guy that wrote the forward to the book. His name's Grant Halloran. Grant was the first CEO client that I ever coached. A lot of people call themselves an executive coach. They're life coaching. You need to be at the C-level to really call yourself an executive coach. I'd got in a boardroom with Grant and he'd interviewed me about being his coach. And he asked me the question that required the executive presence because he said, hey, it all sounds good, Andrew, but how many other CEOs are you coaching? And at that point, of course, the answer was zero. Now, I had to think really fast. What my father had taught me was honesty, authenticity, be who you are. So I took a breath and I looked Grant in the eye and I said, Grant, if you hire me, you will be the first. There was a pregnant pause, but I followed it up with, but imagine how committed I will be to getting you results. And he said, okay, good answer. Let's give it a try. Now, 20 plus years later, he's written the forward of this, my fourth book, and we still work together. He's a Silicon Valley CEO these days. And if I hadn't had that executive presence at that point, I wouldn't have got that client. And the rest, as they say, is history. Well, let me just 
uncover the part that's right below the surface there, Andrew? It was a successful first engagement. That helps. <laughs> What's one thing that you learned working with him that you look back on now and say, oh my gosh, am I glad that we made that decision or that I employed that approach? Graham was really interested in the concept of framing. I taught him the coaching, how to frame a situation. Going back to the early Greek philosophers, it's not what happens to you, it's how you handle it, it's how you see it, it's the narrative. I'd been trained in those things. I was able to use them with Grant. And Grant was a hungry student for framing, reframing. I worked with him and his sales team looking at each pitch that they were making and looking. What was the intention that you went into? What was the objection? How did you reframe that objection? And you you learn best that what you when you teach something, you learn it really to the core. Those early days working on some of those pitches really showed me that the framing, the reframing, the narrative for oneself and for one's clients is really a powerful technique. If you don't know how to do that, you're missing out on business and you're missing out on really driving your own success. So Grant was my best student. That's terrific. That worked out that way. Let's frame our discussion of leadership by starting with your definition that you start right on page two of your book, get it right out up front, where you talk about leadership and you define it as the process of influencing others in a matter that enhances their contribution to the realization of group goals. Let's take that step by step. Why is it so important that people realize that leadership is a process, not just a training, for instance? Oh, thank you for that question, because this is one of those things that does frustrate me. If we go onto LinkedIn, you know, there are a thousand memes, leaders are like this, and leaders do this. And look, lead, leadership is a process, just like taking a shower is a process. Leadership is a function of three things. The leader's style, the follower's motivation and skills, and the environment or the context in which the leadership is occurring. Everybody's talking about the leadership of the president of Ukraine right now, stepping up, frontline, charismatic. And that is a fantastic leadership style, and it's just what they need in that context. But it's not an appropriate leadership style in a different context. Leadership is always a process of those three things. What is your style relative to the follower's motivation? And let's use another analogy. I want to tell the story from your book where if you have a trip on an airplane and you're listening to things going on, all of a sudden you hear this loud bang, maybe there's a choice. In one choice, the pilot's leadership is more collaborative. And he says, everyone, we have a problem with the engine. I'd like you all to break into groups of three or four, brainstorm problems, and then let's all discuss and come to an agreement with that. Versus someone who has the leadership style that's more appropriate to the situation, where you hear a loud mechanical failure, and the pilot gets on the audio and says, listen, everybody, we've had a failure of engine two. I want everyone to stay calm. The oxygen masks have dropped. Fit those over your head before you help the person next to you, and we'll get you back safely and swiftly on the ground in just a short period. It shows that leadership style is very context sensitive. When you share this example, what are some of the additional points that you make to help drive this home that people realize that the style and approach you take to leadership is very much context dependent. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. If the pilot did say, let's create some focus groups, even the atheists would be getting religion at this point, right? It's a great example of context, right? So if I'm working with people who are administering, for instance, they're dealing with doctors who have six years of postgraduate qualifications. You try and micromanage those guys around their area of speciality and you will fail because they are highly motivated and highly skilled in their area. You have to be collaborative. But if you're dealing with new graduates or somebody who has no skills, then you have to be highly directive and instructional. The question is, how much flexibility do you have as a leader? How good are you at reading the room? 
And how stable is the environment? Now, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was talking to Christine, who is a, an HR consultant, and I was interviewing her for the book, and she'd worked a lot with software companies. She was telling me a story about a leader that she was working with. She thought she was the best leader female leader, empathetic, engaging, everybody loved her, everybody was bringing out the best. But at the beginning of the pandemic, when it, there was a requirement to be more directive, this leader failed and was replaced with a highly directive leader who was driving the business and business results. Christine tried to encourage this guy to be a bit more empathetic. So on a call, he might say something like, okay, how's your family? Good. Don't miss a target. Clearly not empathetic. Unfortunately, even somebody who you know, would look like the perfect leader in the wrong context would fail. Yeah, that's really important. Another aspect of leadership that's really important to get is ownership. And I love how you break it down into two sides of ownership what you're responsible for, and what you're accountable to accomplish. You are a very good student, Bill. I love it when the interviewer has actually read the book and understands it. Thank you for that. Let me ask you, in fact, break that down as if I were a CEO client who needed to understand and adapt this to my teams as a high-tech leader. I will. Let's just go back. Responsibility and accountability are words that in English we get interchangeably. And people say, oh, you're accountable for this. So we need to go back to methodology, the first principle of this book, which is self-leadership comes first. I'm an author of two other books on self-leadership. And self-leadership is the practice of intentionally influencing your thinking, feeling, and actions towards your objectives. With self-leadership, you take personal responsibility, right? I'm responsible for my thinking. I'm responsible for my feelings. I'm responsible for my actions. And I'm re responsible for the words that I say. You had actually yeah. had a chance to interview somebody who was very much prominent in this field, Brian Tracy. He also helped you develop the depth of your understanding of that responsibility and accountability, didn't he? Oh, Brian is brilliant at making things very synced. And you are responsible for everything in your life. I got that from Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. The last of all freedoms is the freedom to choose our own attitude. This poem from Henley that inspired Nelson Mandela, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of myself. The Stoic philosophers, when Jim Collins interviewed Admiral Jim Stockdale, this sense of ownership is core. And yet, you know, the last decade, there's been this whole, everybody else is responsible for me. I can't be offended. I've got to be looked after. Everybody's getting a little bit sensitive, right? No, you're responsible for your thoughts, your feelings, your words, your actions. Nobody's coming on a white horse to rescue you. Sorry, let's get real. Now, that responsibility allows us to have accountability. So I'm responsible for how I feel. You're responsible, Bill, for how you feel. But we have an accountability. You engaged me to come on your show. I needed to be ready, prepared, on time to be on your show because that was agreed. And you've agreed to do your preparation and interview me. So we are both individually responsible, but jointly accountable. Now, to your question, as a new CEO, you need to clearly articulate that to people. This is your personal responsibility, and this is what you're saying you're accountable to, or this is what we're agreeing that you're accountable to. Accountability is a contract. You are accountable to the things that we say. If you're married, you are accountable to your spouse, not responsible for your spouse. Well put. I like that very much. When you've broken down the distinctions between responsibility and accountability, 
people can think about it more clearly because it requires that one step and then second step. What am I responsible for is understanding the scope of responsibility that you've been given. And then accountability is an agreement. It's something that people are forging a contract with each time they say that I'll take this on and either be accountable for it in an ongoing way or for this particular episode. Very good. May I just say, this is a common mistake. There's a formula in the book for success, and it starts with clear expectations. Those clear expectations is part of the accountability. So often the conflict occurs because people assume I've set the accountability, but they didn't. They're hallucinating that they did, but it wasn't clear. Can you share an example of when you were speaking with a client? who thought that there was accountability, but as you listened as a third-party coach, you were able to say, wait a second, did you think that conversation you had included an accountability contract? Because I was listening and it didn't. It happens so often. I'm struggling at the moment to think of a specific example because it happens all the time, particularly in coaching conversations when people are coming about an employee, right? This person didn't do this. I have this employee and they didn't do this, right? I've got this sales guy who's not delivering on these results. And I go, where's the accountability? Well, we set these goals. I said, yeah, those are goals. But where was the accountability? What are they accountable for? Are they accountable for making calls? Are they accountable for meeting clients? How are you measuring that? How are you having that conversation? I go, well, they should know. Yeah, should doesn't cut it. You can complain about their lack of responsibility, but your lack of responsibility to hold them accountable is something that we can coach you. Actually, something everyone listening can do. Every time that you think of an employee or direct report that you have a complaint about, you could take a step back and say, have I taken responsibility for making sure there's accountability in the relationship? Have I done that? Maybe I need to reiterate that so that we have more clarity around it. We have a sharp group of people listening here, Andrew, so they will pick this up and start to use it. Really appreciate you making it so crystal clear. Tell me, decisiveness is also a key attribute of leadership. How do you define decisiveness? Decisiveness can also be paralleled with a bias for action, which is the trendy phrase in Silicon Valley here. It's taking ownership around recognizing there's a decision to be made and that you have the responsibility and in this particular case, the accountability to make it. When we're decisive, we remove doubt. We say yes or we say no. We don't say no. I like that. I also think that the distinction you make that the opposite of decisive is not indecisiveness, but it's something that's far more prevalent. Procrastination, kicking the can down the road, not cutting off those possibilities and wasting time and losing advantages when you're procrastinating. Yes. Why do people procrastinate? Why do people not decisive? People are not decisive because they lack confidence. They lack a decision-making framework, but mostly because they fear consequences. What if I get it wrong? Well, you're wrong in 100% of the decisions you don't make because you didn't make a decision. So it was random or it was up to somebody else. In the book, you talk about an example with Gustav, who in 2013 was working for an international baby food company and oh. received a report saying that a batch of baby food was likely contaminated with botulism. And you can't see, smell, or taste botulism, but it can be fatal, especially in babies. And it's such an important idea to talk about decisiveness because of who he was, what he was in with the people who he was with, and the context of this emergency. Can you talk about what you observed or learned from Gustavo's handling of the situation? This is a beautiful story, and I was so impressed when I was interviewing him and he shared this story with me. There he was in Thailand responsible for the distribution of baby food formula for his company. The, the dried milk powder supplier said, oh, we might have 
contamination with botulism. These are our suspect batches. And he has to make a decision. Now, typically across the company, they were going, okay, we'll only withdraw the affected batches. He calls his wife because he's got a baby at home and says, can you just check on which batches we're using? She looks at the batch text back the number and it's the affected batch. And talk about taking it personally, his own newborn baby is potentially at risk fatally from the very product that he represents as a company. He tells his wife, get in a cab, go straight to the hospital. But he has the fortitude to go, I'm worried about my baby. I could just abandon my post and go to the hospital. But there are thousands of babies in this country that I feel accountable for because I'm a representative company. He made a tough decision. He said, we don't know whether it's this batch, that batch. They might come back in a few hours and say it's a different batch, I'm going to make the decision to withdraw everything from the shelves, which is going to cost the company a fortune, but then we don't miss a single batch and not a single child. And this required them sending motorcycles up mountains to little mum and pop shops that don't have telephones and don't have internet to get the stuff off the shelves. And that and I'm is sure put it out on the news to say, if you have these batches, oh, yeah. throw them out. Absolutely. He contacted the government, worked with the government. Instead of trying to kick the can down the road, as you say, instead of trying to avoid responsibility, instead of trying to minimize the cost of the company, he did what he was decisive and he did what was right. Now, the beauty of this story is that it turned out that none of the batches were contaminated, but because he had taken this action, the trust that the government had in him and the trust that the clients had in him, the the whole company was back to normal within six months. The, The damage to the reputation was minimal. In fact, it became nothing. And the trust was huge for making the right decision at the right time, quickly, without prevaricating. Many people think that they could become leaders because they could make the easy decisions. But you're not making hard decisions until there's ambiguity, until there are competing good choices, competing bad choices, or there's a big cost to it. And he showed that there was a cost to it. And he showed that he was in alignment with his values to put people ahead of profits in making that decision. And it's something that everyone listening can take away as a lesson, saying when when you're faced with those big decisions, those are the ones that really define your career and really your life. Because as leaders, we're leaving a legacy. Absolutely. I just want to pick up on something you said there, because it's people over profits, people or profits. And you correctly articulated the subtitle of this book, which is Being Human whilst successfully delivering accelerated results. That's why I wrote this book, because I don't think it's an either-or question, money or people. To have a legacy, to be sustainable, it's money and people, right? If we push too hard, too fast for the profits, we either alienate our staff, our employees, or our customers. There are no shortcuts, right? So spending the time on developing people, developing relationships does end up with the profits. It isn't an either or, it's an and situation. And anybody who misses that, I think, really will reap the rewards for emotionally, psychologically, socially, in terms of reputation management. Anybody who ignores that will reap the consequences. Andrew, you quote Maya Angelou as saying that talent is electricity. We don't understand electricity, we use it. And you go on to really define very clearly There are ways to break down and understand strengths and talent. Strengths, you actually give an equation. You say strengths is the product of capacity times opportunity times willingness to use it. So when you're looking at people's strengths and you're looking for ways for people to use their strengths because they may have a strength but not have the opportunity to use it in their day-to-day responsibilities, that's an easy way to think about getting the most productivity by having people use their strengths more often. Can you help? demystify 
talent from people not understanding it like electricity, but actually saying, here's how we can harness it. A few practical tips, such as in order to use electricity better, push the plug all the way into the socket so the cord doesn't jump out when you use the smoothie mixer. Okay, so the first thing is to stop using the word talent, right? Because talent is overused. Talent is something that's fairly unique, right? I share the same surname as Kobe Bryant, who was incredibly talented as a basketball player, right? There is no amount of training, study, exercise that I would ever be able to have his talent at basketball. It is genetic, God-given, however you want to describe it. Talent in itself is actually very rare. Strength, however, we all have strengths in certain areas. I have the strength to write and speak about this particular topic, but I don't have strength in data analysis. Pick somebody who's good at data analysis to do data analysis. Use the strength. I have the opportunity to use my strengths in the medium that I currently am in, and I have the willingness to do it. So C-O-W, it spells COW. It's an easy acronym to remember. I was working with a young lady, Patricia, in Vietnam. Patricia was working for a global pharmaceutical company in Vietnam. I was coaching her around executive presence, but on one of our calls, she asked me about an employee that she had. And she said, this man had been promoted into her team. Previously, he had been performing, but in her team, he was just missing deadlines. The quality of work was poor. And she said, I don't know what to do. And I shared the acronym. I said, it's about capacity. It's about opportunity and willingness. Is he willing to do the work? She said, I think he is. I said, does he have the capacity to do the work? She said, I don't know. I said, is this opportunity ideal for him? And she said, maybe we have accelerated him too quickly. So his capacity is not meeting this opportunity. I said, because if it's willingness, then we have a different conversation. If he doesn't have the capacity, then you need to either demote him or train him in that area, move him to a different opportunity. But if it's a willingness issue, then it's a different conversation. And she said, I think he just doesn't have the capacity to do what we're asking him to do. So I said, well, it's clear what you need to do next. She said, thank you. And is that how it was resolved? The diagnostic was excellent. Was it resolved that way? It was resolved that way. Unfortunately, in that particular company, they were struggling for manpower at that particular time. And that's why you were asking people to do things that they weren't skilled enough to do. And that can be a challenge. It's actually yeah. a relief for the person who was put into that position who knew that he didn't have the capacity to do the job and was struggling. He was struggling to keep above water when he just didn't have the skills or experience or support to do the work that he was being asked to be responsible for. You're spot on. And sometimes you've got somebody who is just not performing, but it's the wrong opportunity. You move them to a different department and they blossom and thrive. They're back and breaking it down rather than personalizing and saying, Jim is not working. Why, Jim? Is it a capacity? Is it the opportunity? Or is it Jim's willingness? Andrew, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? As ready as I'll ever be. You shoot and let's see what I can catch. <laughs> there we go. At the beginning of the interview, I asked you about someone who influenced or inspired you growing up, and you named your dad. When you were a teenager, Andrew, what's a song that you loved? Oh, my goodness. I was so many. Uh, Every Little Breath She Takes by the police. Terrific. What are the top metrics or KPIs that you track in your own business? New clients and size of the scope of that client. So it's very easy for me to do a small piece of business. I'm interested in the piece that I can do across the organization and across the globe. What would you say is the best $100 or so purchase you've made in the last six months? $100 or 100 euros? 
Otter.ai. It's a software that is a AI speech recognition. I record every conversation I have and it's transcribed and I can go back and either listen or read it. And if I say something clever, I've got that captured. And if they said the client said something important, I can use that in the proposal. What's your definition of personal success? I know I'm being successful when? I, when I feel useful, when I see the lights coming on in my clients. And who in your field inspires you? We mentioned Brian Tracy. He's been doing it for so long and still has the energy and the passion that he's always had. In the last year or so, what's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped that's brought you the most personal satisfaction or pleasure? The habit that I've stopped is adding people to my personal Facebook. In fact, I removed 2,000 people so that I have a much smaller group that I can just use for sounding off that I need to. As we're in this kind of getting back together at work and having more opportunities to meet live or coaching or speaking opportunities, what are two or three ideas you have about how the future of work will unfold given the post-pandemic lockdown that we're past? What I see as we get together is a lot of organizations are going to be less focused on owning their own office and looking more for that shared working space. So instead of people working from home, giving people access to shared office spaces and having retreats where people get together and hopefully with facilitators like myself to push the conversation forwards to outcomes, bringing people together for a purpose, intentional meetings rather than meetings for the sake of having meetings. Yes. It's that purpose-driven, purpose-centered outcome that makes all the difference. Absolutely. You have been so generous in sharing with us today. Andrew, I just want to thank you so much for talking about your father and what it was like watching him own the room and your first example and imprint of executive presence. You talked about Grant Halloran, who was your first client, you learned so much through working with him. And that first gig, that first working with him as an executive coach made such a difference that you continue to draw back on those experiences and you stay related to him today. The idea of being responsible for your work and accountable through verbal or even written contracts with others is huge for people to take away. And the idea of decisiveness, where you bring a bias to action to your work, is something that I think a lot of people are going to take away from today's conversation. Andrew, for these reasons and so many more, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Let me thank say that over. Andrew Bryant, author of The New Leadership Playbook, I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Absolutely. Before my we, pleasure, Bill. Before we yeah, say goodbye go for now, Andrew, where could people find out more about you and your work online? The easiest place to find me is selfleadership.com. I have a website just for the book, thenewleadershipplaybook.com, and connect with me through LinkedIn. That's the easiest place to find me. Maya Angelou, who we spoke of before, we referenced her quote about electricity and talent. She was perhaps best known for saying, people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And as leaders, it's something we all need to embrace. Andrew Bryant, author of the new leadership playbook, I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. 
My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.